I'm Mark Rees and welcome to this extra special Halloween edition of my curious ghosts and folklore podcast where in each episode I investigate a different, weird and wonderful subject and on this episode I will be condensing the entire history of Halloween into one little pocket-sized podcast. Yes, the entire history of Halloween ever in less than an hour. And we will look at its origins. Can we trace it back to some ancient Celtic festival? What part did Christianity play? What part did Guy Fawkes play? And what about the traditions? Where did they come from? Where did trick-or-treating and costumes and jack-o'-lanterns come from? And most importantly, I think, how did American housewives host the perfect Halloween party right at the start of the 20th century? Because if you think Halloween parties are a little bit crazy and wild nowadays, just wait until you find out exactly what people got up to in 1903. I promise you, you have not heard of a party like this before. Now, as regular listeners will know, I love Halloween. I love October. I love autumn or fall, as it's known to some of my international listeners. And that is why I have dedicated the entire month of October All five episodes in October, starting today, to the history and the ghosts and the folklore of Halloween. And before we dive into this episode, because there is a heck of a lot to squeeze in to the entire history of Halloween, some of you might be wondering what the Welsh connection is with all of this, because this podcast is primarily dedicated to the ghosts and folklore of Wales, hence the name, Ghosts and Folklore of Wales. Well, there is indeed a Welsh Halloween, or there is certainly a celebration which takes place on October the 31st called Norse Calan Gaev. It's a wonderful Welsh language name, which means the night before the first day of winter. And one of the issues I have with talking about Norse Calan Gaev in isolation is that in the grand scheme of things, it's just one small part of the bigger picture. Norse Calan Gaev is one of the jigsaw pieces in this big spooky puzzle that is Halloween. So what I will be doing is that as we go through this history, I will point out here and there where the Welsh Norse Kalangayev fits in to the bigger picture. And then on the next two episodes, I will zoom in and focus in specifically on the Welsh traditions. But for this episode, we are going global. We are going to look at the bigger picture. And that's enough waffling and build-up. Let us jump straight in to this wonderful story. And what I'd like to do is to do things back to front. Let us start in the modern day, because, you know, I, I like to be punk rock and alternative and do things the wrong way around. But if we start nowadays, Halloween is seen by many as an American invention. And that is kind of true, but not 
entirely. And America isn't the only country which is credited with inventing Halloween. It is also seen as an Irish invention. And again, it's correct to say that yes, so many Irish immigrants, along with many other immigrants, but a lot of Irish immigrants took their old celebrations and traditions to the new world with them. And it was in America they took on a life of their own and became the Halloween we know and love today. So is this teamwork? Is it a combination of Irish and American influences, maybe? Well, once again, that is kind of true, yes. But it's slightly more complicated than that. Where it gets a bit murkier is that in Ireland, it can be traced back, apparently, to pre-Christian times, to an old Celtic festival, which is spelt Samhain. And if I'm pronouncing it correctly, it's Samhain, but it's spelt S-A-M-H-A-I-N. And as mentioned, this is where it does get a bit murky, because to begin with, we don't even know if this festival did indeed influence Halloween later on. But assuming it did, there is also the equivalent in the other Celtic nations. So in Scotland and the Isle of Man, they are also celebrating Samhain, which was a harvest festival and marked the start of winter. But it doesn't end there. There's another group of Celts in Cornwall, in Curnow, over towards France, in Brittany. And of course, the country I am talking to you from now, in Wales, in Cymru, where October the 31st was known as, and is still known as today, as Norse Kalan Gaev. And as with the Gaelic festivals, Kalan Gaev is the first day of winter, Norse is the night before, so it's the night before the first day of winter, and it marked the time when the light half of the year was over, and the dark half of the year was over approaching. Now, I won't dwell too long on Norse Kalangayev here, because as mentioned, I do have a separate episode coming up dedicated entirely to it. But for the purposes of this episode, it is just worth bearing in mind that these festivals, these similar festivals, were taking place in the different Celtic lands. And we don't really know which of these came first, and if they have any connection or not with the Halloween festivities which followed. But what we do know, and it's nice to have some certainty after all those ifs and buts and maybes and ums and ahs, is that Christianity certainly put its stamp on things. And we could say somewhat ironically, because Christianity and Halloween haven't always had a great relationship together, shall we say. Ironically, you could say Christianity is to blame for the fact that we still have this festival today. But let me explain. In the 8th century, it was decided that the Christian festival All Saints Day, and we'll talk about that name shortly, but All Saints Day, which had been moved around the calendar several times, it was decided that All Saints Day, which commemorated the saints all the saints. Otherwise, it would be called <laughs> Some Saints Day, I guess. But all the saints, all of those great servants of God, would be celebrated on November the 1st. November the 1st, 
the day after all of these Celtic people had their big harvest festival. Now, there are some people who say this is no coincidence. Obviously, they chose this date to put a Christian stamp on this pagan superstitious event which celebrated all of that stuff we no longer want people thinking about. And that explains some of that connection between modern-day Halloween and these ancient festivals. But there are others who say that no... This ancient festival had nothing to do with ghouls and ghosts, and the date chosen by the church had nothing to do with trying to stamp it out. But for the purposes of this episode, what is important is the fact that it was called All Saints' Day, not Some Saints' Day. (laughs) And it was also known as the Feast of All Saints, Hallowmas, and All Hallows' Day. Now, I'm sure you are one step ahead of me here, but if not, All Hallows' Day on November the 1st, well, the night before, as with the Welsh Norse Kalangayev, would be the night before All Saints' Day, which made it All Saints' Eve or All Hallows' Eve. And we all know how the human race likes to shorten things, to make things easier to say. The way people say lotto instead of lottery, or chippy instead of chip shop, or the one that really (laughs) drives me mad when I go shopping, mac n cheese instead of macaroni cheese. But anyway, this, this isn't the time or the place for me to have a rant about abbreviating food names. Back to Halloween. The name is shortened, so from All Hallows' Eve, and they begin by saying, look, we don't need that first word. Get rid of that one. Hallows' Eve. Hallows' Eve is much better. And as I'm sure you are, you are getting already, when you say these words quickly, like I am in my sort of, my quick Welsh tongue, in my tavod cabraig, if you say Hallows Eve, quick enough, it does morph into a new word, Hallows Eve. And before you know it, you wake up one day and everyone is calling it Halloween. And that's why occasionally you do still see people using the apostrophe between the E's, the hallow, and then the apostrophe in bit at the end. And so while the experts can't agree on whether or not Halloween does derive from some ancient Celtic festival, They can pretty much all agree that its name is certainly taken from Christianity. And so, if you love spooky season, and whether or not you're religious or not, we can all thank God for giving us the name, at least, when it comes to Halloween. And it could be said Christianity gave us the date as well in its way. But the Pope didn't just suddenly tell everyone to go out and start carving jack-o'-lanterns. This was an important religious observance. It actually encompassed three days in the end. All Souls Day was tacked on as a third day, and these three days back then, as they are now to many people in the world, remained important dates in the Christian calendar. So what happened between then and now? In the the, the centuries in between where three days of religious ceremony became this 
anarchic event where we all dress up as ghouls and ghosts nowadays. Well, we know over the centuries it was certainly a time for getting together, having a drink and a piece of cake, even if that was in a church kind of a way, nothing too crazy like nowadays. And in the late 16th century, William Shakespeare, the great bard, and yes, I love any excuse to shoehorn William Shakespeare into my podcast. But William Shakespeare's play, The Two Gentlemen of Rona, did indeed name drop Halloween. Well, not not Halloween directly, but when Speed, the character Speed, was analysing love, a very important topic in Shakespeare's plays, when he was analysing love, he said, watch like one that fears robbing, to speak pulling like a beggar at Hallowmas. Or to translate that last bit into a bit more modern day English, he is saying that the lovesick whine like a beggar, a beggar begging at Halloween. And I'm sure you're already ahead of me on this one as well, but as we can see, if Shakespeare in the late 16th century was connecting begging with October the 31st, how that tradition might have morphed into something that we continue to do today. Now, William Shakespeare wrote that at the end of the 16th century, and it was right at the start of the 17th century, in 1605, in fact, that a very important event in British history took place. And we've spoken a lot about the Celtic nations in Britain and Ireland, but until now we haven't really looked at England. And I think this is England's big, big contribution to what America would do with with Halloween many years later in that big melting pot. And it is also why we have the rhyme, Remember, remember the 5th of November. Gunpowder, treason and plot. Yes, it was on November the 5th, 1605, that a plot, a dastardly gunpowder plot, to blow up the King of England and his Parliament was foiled. And as a result, from that day forth, November the 5th became a day of celebration, and it would be known as Guy Fawkes Night. Some people call it Guy Fawkes Day, Bonfire Night and Firework Night because bonfires are lit and fireworks are let off. And the reason it's called Guy Fawkes Night is because Guy Fawkes was the name of the plotter who was caught red-handed, surrounded by that gunpowder, just waiting to blow everyone to smithereens. Now, as mentioned, he was unsuccessful, which is why we celebrate that day today. And I don't want to dwell too long on Guy Fawkes Night here because, well, because I've got another episode all about it coming up in November. But this is a Halloween episode, and I think it's important for us just to bear in mind that this annual celebration did steal some of Halloween's thunder because it took place just a few days afterwards, five days after October the 31st. There were lots of similarities. It was this nighttime autumnal event with bonfires and festivities. And of course, this had, for some people, a patriotic nature to it, a patriotic slant. And it was sponsored by the state. 
So you could say, for some people, it became more important and took priority and took the place of Halloween for many. Now, of course, that isn't the case nowadays. Halloween is very much the dominant of the two. But who knows, maybe in an alternative reality where America didn't get its hands on this celebration and transform it into what we have today, maybe Guy Fawkes Night would have emerged as the leading autumn get-together. I don't know, it's all a bit hypothetical now, but while they are both still celebrated, Halloween really is seen as that global one which dominates our media and our culture and, of course, the sweet-slash-candy aisles of our supermarkets. Anyway, that's that's enough about gunpowder, and th that's enough about Britain and Ireland and Europe, actually. Let's all hoist the sails and set off across the Atlantic to the new world, to that distant land, that new paradise called America. And as we've touched upon briefly, the Irish are credited with taking this annual celebration to the United States with them when they emigrated en masse. But I think it's worth remembering that America is, of course, this wonderful melting pot of cultures. And it was almost like America threw all of these ideas into a cauldron, mixed them up, and the end result is this incredible festival we know and love today. So let's take a quick look at exactly what the Irish and everyone else in the world took to the new world with them. There were, of course, many Germans there, and Germany has its own wonderful festival, Walpurgis Night, centred on witches and the devil, but has so many similarities with Halloween that you could easily see them being absorbed into one unique night. You have those from Catholic countries, because this was, let us not forget, all Hallow's Eve, Hallow Mass, all three days are sacred days, and those from Spain or Italy or wherever they came from would be very familiar with celebrating Hallowtide, All Saints Eve, All Saints Day, and All Souls Day. And if we turn our attention back to the British again, and probably the English in particular, we've already spoken about Guy Fawkes Night, but once they arrived in America, they brought some other beliefs with them, and there's no getting away from the influence of the Puritans, who brought with them this God-fearing phobia, I, I guess you'd call it, almost a paranoia to those who did the devil's work. And the most prominent of those people would usually be women, and those women would be condemned as witches. And again, this is a Halloween podcast, not a witches podcast, but I think if I just say the words Salem Witch Trials, you get an idea of the kind of influence they had at the time and how this injustice continues to echo through the centuries. And yes, I do have a tenuous Welsh link with the Salem Witch Trials, so I will be lining up an episode about that in the future. And as a very quick aside, as we are talking about Salem and Halloween, I would love to spend Halloween, actually all of October, all of autumn, <laughs> in Salem one year, if at all possible. Because I don't think there is anywhere in the world that does 
Halloween on such an epic scale. And for so long, it, it seems to be a, a year-round event. But my knowledge is only based on reading books and looking at internet videos and things. So I would love to experience it myself. But anyway, back to Halloween. And as I've spoken about, we can see how America, this great melting pot of ideas, and how all these different people who emigrated there took their own little traditions with them to give us this incredible holiday, which, if the internet is correct, and of course the internet is always correct, but if the internet is correct, Halloween is the second biggest holiday in the entire country nowadays after Christmas. And that means a heck of a lot of people carving jack-o'-lanterns, dressing up in costumes, going door-to-door trick or treating, and that is exactly what I would like to look at now. Where did these specific traditions come from? Or where we think these traditions came from? And let us start with costumes. Costumes are an integral part of any Halloween party. And over the years, over the decades, over the centuries, they have evolved. And at different times in history, costumes were seen as something for the children to wear, something for the adults to wear, or as we have nowadays, something for everyone to wear. Even the animals, even the poor pets, we've all seen pictures of people who have dressed up their dogs like Yoda and all sorts of things. But if you go right back to the start, and you can do an internet search for these early costumes, they were very much DIY to begin with, and as a result, I think, that much more creepier. And these costumes are homemade costumes. This is long before the whole commercialization of mass-producing whatever popular character was on the television screen, but these were homemade costumes. This was DIY, and as a result, some of these old costumes do look particularly terrifying. Not because they look like some outlandish demon from the fevered imaginations of H.P. Lovecraft or something. Quite the opposite. It's the banality, the normality of these, the, these constructions just made with some old rags, discarded pieces of cardboard, maybe some very crudely carved vegetables. And it all looks a bit... I mean, the, the images I'm looking at right now, they're almost... They, they look like the villagers in The Wicker Man, but they've slightly melted and they've put less effort into, into getting dressed for this particular May Day festivity. But don't take my word for it. Get on the internet to do a search for old Halloween costumes, the good old turn of the 20th century black and white photos, and they will send a shiver down your spine. But things have moved on in leaps and bounds since then. You no longer need a pair of scissors and a pile of discarded old clothes to make a costume. You can pick one up off the shelf just by popping to your local shop. It's that easy. And did you know what the most rented Halloween costume of all time is? And this amazed me. The most rented Halloween costume of all time, which I assumed would be what? Maybe... Maybe Dracula? Maybe something tied in with a big film franchise. Maybe Darth Vader or somebody. But no, the number one most rented Halloween costume ever, by all accounts, is simply a gorilla suit. Not the most horrific, 
Although, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fancy bumping into a gorilla on the street, but hardly Freddy Krueger levels of scary. Just a gorilla. Although maybe, and, and this is just off the top of my head, maybe this has some connection to when King Kong was a, a huge, huge film. Maybe it, it's continued from then, I don't know. But anyway, if you are stuck for an idea this year, it's probably best to avoid the gorilla suit because there's going to be a lot of them out there. Now, back to costumes, where did they come from? Well, the answer could be quite boring. It could simply be the fact that people like to dress up for parties. Halloween isn't unique in this. People do dress up for other festivals and parties. Maybe it's just something that people started doing, it caught on, it became a tradition, and that's it, maybe. But there are other theories, and that is dressing up could have its roots, again, back to these ancient Celtic festivals, which, by all accounts, the experts do not know that much about. But if people started to dress up in such a way to scare away evil spirits, and that could still be lingering today in the form of Halloween costumes. Now, granted, we are more likely to dress up as an evil spirit than to try and scare one away. And it has been suggested that maybe it was the other way around, and that dressing up was actually a way to mock the evil spirits. But either way, that is one theory as to where it came from. Another is the tradition of Geisen, which does tie in nicely with the idea of Halloween being exported to America because it is a traditional Scottish and Irish custom. It's, it's a Scottish word. It started in these Celtic lands and certainly in the 19th century and possibly before that, children would go door to door in disguise sometimes wearing masks known as false faces. And they would ask for nuts and for apples and treats for their Halloween parties. Now, it doesn't take a huge leap to see how this could be continued nowadays with people dressing up and going door to door. And that is not all, because when these geysers went door to door, they would carry with them a lantern. A lantern? which was carved from a root vegetable, which appeared to have a face on them. A glowing, grinning face with a candle behind its eyes, which leads us very nicely into our next tradition, that of the jack-o'-lantern. Now, this is, I think, the most single iconic image of Halloween. Yes, there's witches and bats and cats, and even those little candy corn pieces of sweets slash candy, which I have never, ever tasted because they are not available outside of the US, or certainly not, not in Wales in the UK. So if any of my American friends listen in, fancy sending me some for Halloween, <laughs> please do. But all of these things, yes, they symbolise Halloween, but nothing says October the 31st like a grinning, carved pumpkin flickering away on the windowsill or on the doorstep, on the porch, just waiting to greet any unsuspecting victims who pay you a visit on that night. Now, as with the costumes, we've mentioned that in the Gaelic countries, people might carry a carved root vegetable with them to illuminate the way. And this tradition, by all accounts, goes back 
a long, long, long time, and it wasn't exclusive to just the Gaelic countries. When it comes to Halloween traditions, it can also be found in England and in the other Celtic countries, like Cornwall, and yes, in Wales. And each country would use whatever root vegetable was most readily available. So in Scotland and Ireland, they might carve a turnip and they took this tradition to America with them. In Wales, we carved a swede. And this isn't some long forgotten ancient thing. When I was growing up in the 1980s, which, okay, granted, might be a long time ago for some listeners, but it's not centuries ago. And back in the 1980s, we were still carving Swedes then. Pumpkins were not mass-produced and readily available in the supermarkets like they are now. We had to depend on whatever root vegetable was available. Now, of course, pumpkins have become the standard in more recent times, and we can thank America for that, because... I'll be honest, as patriotic as I am, and as much as I love being Welsh and carving a Swede, it stinks, it absolutely reeks, and it's bloody hard work. You, you, you need He-Man muscles to carve these things. Carving a pumpkin is much more fun, it's much easier, it looks better. So thank you, America, for that bit. Halloween is much, much better and I am assuming the reason America chose the pumpkin is purely as with all the other countries that was the most readily available thing to carve up and luckily it was because fast forward to the 1970s a man called John Carpenter came along and further immortalized that pumpkin as the symbol of Halloween in a film called you guessed it Friday the 13th no, it wasn't. That was a rubbish joke. It was Halloween. John Carpenter's Halloween released in 1978. Possibly my favourite horror film ever. But very quickly, before we move on from jack-o'-lanterns, I did touch upon the Welsh jack-o'-lantern, which was traditionally made from a Swede. And next week's episode of this podcast is going to be dedicated entirely to the Welsh jack-o'-lantern and no it's not some cute and cuddly thing that you put on the porch like a normal jack-o'-lantern the welsh jack-o'-lantern was a dreaded ghost it lured travelers to their doom in some quite horrific ways but as i said all will be revealed on next week's episode and as always the best way to make sure you don't miss an episode and notice how I am going to very smoothly shoehorn a quick reference to subscribing in here but the best way to make sure you don't miss any of these Halloween specials because there are five of them this is just the first one there's another four on the way over the next four weeks and so if you are enjoying this and you would like to catch all of the others please consider hitting the subscribe button and you will have the best Halloween ever as a result. Anyway, back to this episode. And we've spoken about how these geysers would wear costumes, how they would carry lanterns with them, maybe carved into evil-looking faces. And that's not all, because they would also, as they went door-to-door, -door, ask for food. They were asking for treats which leads us very nicely 
into our next tradition, the idea of trick-or-treating. And I think this is something, again, we really can say America did put its stamp on. Because, again, just, just going back to my childhood a million years ago in the 1980s, but we didn't say trick-or-treat back then. We went door-to-door, we dressed up, and we carried our jack-o'-lanterns. And we simply said, Happy Halloween. That was it. No trick-or-treat. No punishment for those who gave us nothing. And we expected money rather than sweets slash candy. But there you go. In America, it's a different story. Although this tradition did not start in America itself. By all accounts, it was just over the border. And it was in Canada the trick-or-treating began. And while going door-to-door and asking for treats was certainly a tradition in the early 1900s, it didn't really evolve into this idea of trick-or-treat until the 1930s, and it's pretty much stuck around since. And while nowadays children want the sugary treats, they want the sweets slash candy, the chocolate bars, to begin with, it was the more wholesome apples and nuts they were asking for. And there is another old Christian tradition that this could have its roots in, and that is the idea of soul cakes, which, as the name suggests, they were cakes, they were cakes with a cross on them, and they were made with spices and currants, and the idea was that people would go door to door asking for these soul cakes, and in return, they would say a prayer for the dead, for their soul, hence the name soul cakes. This was very much a transaction. Give me a cake. In return, I will say a prayer for the souls of the dead. Both parties get something. Unlike today, where it's a case of give us some sweets or we throw eggs at your house or wrap the place in toilet paper or something, some kind of prank, some kind of game. And that does lead me very nicely into the next tradition I'd like to look at. And that is, of course, Halloween games. And the big traditional games to be played on this night involved divination, which in its most simplest form is a kind of magic, um, <laughs> like the Queen's song, divination, it's a kind of magic, and and it can be used to tell the future. And it was mainly young people, young adults, and of those young women who attempted to divine the future. And the reason for that is a lot of these spells, if you want to call them that, could only be cast on October the 31st, and they would reveal to you some intimate details, some romantic details about your future love life. Who are you going to marry? Will they be tall? Will they be short? Will they be rich? Will they be poor? Will they be whatever question you want the answer to? You can find out using divination on Halloween. And as a quick example of the kind of divination that you could perform is the test of naming bedposts. Naming bedposts is the name of it. And this I'm going to quote from quite an influential book on American Halloween traditions dating from way back in 1903, right at the start of the 20th century, when really America caught the Halloween bug. And this was in Werner's Reading and Recitations. And this is how naming bedposts works. And like I said, this is genuine. You can try this yourself on Halloween. Before your first nap, 
on the last day of October. I, I don't know how many naps people had back then, but presumably more than one. So before you go to sleep on Halloween, name four bedposts. The first one being art. The second one, science. The third, literature. And the fourth, business. The post you see first on awakening will indicate your future vocation. Should your eyes first rest on post called art, many beautiful things are in store for you. If science post is first seen, you will acquire deep learning, etc. Be sure not to get the posts confused. Remember the order in which they have been named. So that's, that's quite an easy one, really. Although, I don't know how many of us have bedposts nowadays. Maybe you'll just have to name the wheels at the bottom of the bed or something instead. But if you name them art, science, literature, business, you will reveal your future vocation. Who needs careers advice in schools, eh, when you've got when you've got old American books of Halloween traditions? And as we're looking at Werner's, I do I do absolutely love this book. And if anyone does sort of seriously want to look into the history of Halloween, I can recommend picking up a copy. But at the start of this book, it has a Halloween program. A Halloween program which the hostess and this is 1903, so yes, it's always the women who are assumed to be in charge of these affairs. But this is a guide for the hostess with which she can plan definitively her evening's entertainment. So if you want the perfect Halloween party, you need to follow these steps. And it also stresses, before I give you this list, no game should be continued after the fun has reached its height. So I don't know what the heck was going on in the early 1900s in America, but it sounds like the parties were quite wild if they had to put a stop to games that people were no longer enjoying. So the hostess, so she can carry out her whole evening rapidly and without a hitch, should do these 10 things in this order. Number one, the reception and the introduction of guests. Nice and straightforward, that one. Number two, shadow pantomimes, which, as the name suggests, involves a big white sheet and you have shadows behind it creating spooky whatever you want to do with it, shadow pantomimes. Number three is a spook march, which is quite a long description for this one, but basically, as with the last one, it involves a sheet, but these sheets are put over people and they walk around with candles moaning and groaning and scaring people and pretending to be ghosts. Number four is the witches dance. Now, again, the name is quite self-explanatory. And this involves eight witches riding brooms and dancing around the stage in a circle while constant hissing is kept up as if lots of cats were present. So this isn't really for small parties. You need at least eight women. Again, I'm assuming it's women back then. At least eight women to dress as the witches. And presumably you need more than another eight people to do the hissing at them. Because it's not, it's not really going to work, is it? Just two people hissing back. But anyway, that's the witches dance. Let's move on to number five. And that is the goblin parade. The goblin parade begins in total darkness. And so sounds a bit dangerous if there's going to be alcohol involved, but there's a green light is used just to illuminate the goblins themselves, who do things like handsprings 
and somersaults around the stage. So this is for the more athletic members of your party, I am assuming, and other children maybe, but certainly not those on the booze. Number six is play clever matchmakers, which is another one that goes on for page after page after page, but it's pretty much a a play that involves somebody finding somebody else and, and ties in with the idea of divination and finding your true love on Halloween. Number seven is games and mysteries for early evening. So Halloween is a marathon, not a sprint. This goes on for quite some time. We are still only in early evening and we're on entertainment number seven. And some of these games include, and again, there's loads of them, so I can't read them all out, but they include games like Guess Who, where you try and work out who is behind a sheet, or Jumping Lighted Candle, which, as the name suggests, involves jumping a lighted candle. And is another one you probably shouldn't do if you are on the booze. Oh, and I I can't leave out the Alphabet game, which, the Alphabet game, you cut Alphabet from newspaper, and sprinkle on surface of water. Letters floating may spell or suggest name of future husband or wife. There we are. That's a nice quick uh, quick game there for you. That's the alphabet game. Now, moving on to number eight. Number eight. We're nearly there. Don't worry. Number eight is the March to Supper, which isn't quite as straightforward as it sounds. You don't just march off and sit down and stuff your face because partners have to be secured first by drawing lots from two baskets or some of the other methods. But basically, who you end up sitting next to is going to be a big surprise. And then we move on to number nine, which is the supper itself and supper games. Yes, more games. And this gives the hostess a chance to say, ladies and gentlemen, I have arranged with great care, as you see, a fine supper. You will confer a great favour to me by keeping to yourselves the wonders and secrets you discover. Do not let your neighbour know what you discover. Now, on the same page, it then goes on to list everything that will be on the menu. So this whole thing about not telling everyone isn't going to work because I am about to tell everyone. Well, actually, I won't because it's a five-course supper and I'll be here all day. But I can say that the fifth and final course is Halloween cake or funny pumpkin. And personally, I'd want both of those. I quite fancy Halloween cake and a funny pumpkin. And finally, assuming you're still awake, finally, number 10, after supper, sports, games and mysteries. There are more. (laughs) There are more games in this Halloween program than an entire month of the Olympics. But to to wrap things up, the last games, the after-supper sports, include your lucky sticks, in which you draw a stick to reveal your future partner. So it could be a long stick, a short stick, a straight or crooked, plain or smooth or knotty stick. And I'm sure that was a lot of fun. The next one is straightforward in theory because it involves telling ghost stories, but you do it while burning a stick. And when your stick burns out altogether, 
you stop and the story moves on to the next person. So between you, until all those sticks are burnt out, you put together this this new Frankenstein-like ghost story. And finally, finally, there is an end to this party. Finally, it's all wrapped up with a little bit of fortune telling. Just in case you haven't done enough divination already, it ends with fortune telling where you test walnuts in the fire and that, uh, I I won't go into it in too much detail, but depending on how they pop and things, that tells you things about your future. And the last line, and the hostess is going to love this one. Meanwhile, hostess has disappeared and returns dressed as a fortune teller. She offers to tell fortunes or read character. So just when you think this is the end, we're all going home, I can kick these people out of my house. No, you have to go and get changed one more time into a fortune teller and then go around telling everyone their fortunes. Happy Halloween, hostess. And I would love to know if anyone still celebrates in that way. Or maybe after listening to that, you've been scribbling away, writing down the instructions and you plan on doing so. If so, Please get in touch. It's always good to hear from people. Track me down on social media and let me know what your plans are for Halloween or just what you thought about this episode or if you just want to say hello or happy Halloween. I'm quite easy to find. All the links to my social media profiles you can find on my website or you can just do a search for Mark Reese and put the word whales or ghosts in and I will pop up at the top on all of the main social media sites, so Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and that lot. All of which very nearly brings me to the end of this whirlwind tour through the history of Halloween. Not quite yet, because I've got one more surprise up my sleeve before I say goodbye. But just very quickly, this has only been a whirlwind through the entire history. The next couple of episodes are going to focus in much more detail on Norse Kalangaya of the Welsh Halloween, on that old Celtic festival, and the final one, the fifth and final one on October the 29th, is going to be my online book launch for my new shiny new ghost book called Paranormal Whales. But before we get to all that, let's wrap up this episode first. And I referred to the Werner's Reading and Recitations book, that wonderful American book from the early 1900s, which I think is one of the definitive books on Halloween in the good old days. Or Well, well, that's a matter of opinion, but certainly in the good early days. And as I was flicking through it, I noticed that the the very first page opens with a poem. And I do love wrapping things up with a poem, so I am going to end this episode with a verse entitled simply Halloween, which was published in 1903 in the Werner's Halloween book. And before I do so, it just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian and Grando. I've been Mark Rees. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast beaming to you from Wales to the entire world. And it's the best, it's the beautiful, it's the only Ghosts and Folklore from Wales podcast. And on that note, Halloween. <coughs> always uh, always good to clear the throat before uh, reciting poetry, I find. 
The night wind whispers, Ghosts! They are waiting for their hosts. The waning moon is weary and will not be up till late. Already there are shadows at the gate. A word, half-heard, that is whispered in your ear. And a presence that is felt when no one else is near. Have you been along the corridors alone, all alone, and listened to the wind up yonder making moan? Have you thought about it all, the footfall in the hall, that comes and goes, comes and goes, with the measure of a heartbeat of a life that ebbs and flows? The end. And I'll be honest, I felt a little bit like Jack Skellington reading that, but there you go. I hope you enjoyed. Until next time, your star, 